57 percent of ceos like what right Right. (laughs) i don't know right sounds right yeah exactly that's what i said coming to you from the heart of thomas jefferson's academical village this is academical the official podcast of the virginia policy review the virginia policy review is an independent organization staffed by students at the frank batten school of leadership and public policy at the university of virginia with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski. I'm a second-year MPP student, and this episode we're talking about criminal justice reform, and this is a topic that has really been at the national forefront of the conversation for the last four and a half, five months, and in particular since the killing of, of George Floyd back in May. But it's a it's a topic and an issue that has been in need of, of being addressed for, for quite some time because the fact of the matter is there, there are those, uh, there are groups of people in this country who experience law enforcement and the police in a different way than others do. And so to dive into this, we will uh, talk with our co-host and our co-host this week is Jordan Sicklick, who is a second year MP, accelerated MPP student. And he actually spent this past summer interning at the Department of Justice. And he's spent a lot of his time at Batten really uh, diving into issues around Around criminal justice. So we'll talk with Jordan about that. And then Jordan and I had a chance to catch up with Henrico County Commonwealth's attorney, Shannon Taylor. And Shannon Taylor is uh, has been elected. She's been the Commonwealth's attorney in Henrico County since 2011. And, and a quick background on Henrico County, it's the county just north of, of the city of Richmond. It is the fifth largest county in Virginia. And when Shannon Taylor, when she was elected in 2011, she's the first woman to, to serve in this role for Henrico County. And she also, it was kind of a surprise when she was elected because she is a Democrat. And this is a, a county that, while it's trending more Democratic, it kind of has um, you know a tradition of, of voting more Republican. And, and currently, right now, the the uh, county and the board of supervisors there are three Republicans and two Democrats. And so we'll talk with Shannon about that. There's also speculation that she will run for Virginia's attorney general next year, November 2021. Mark Herring, the incumbent, has announced his intention to run for a second term. Jay Jones has also officially announced his intentions to run uh, on the Democratic side. And then Shannon Taylor, there's speculation that she's going to run. And we ask her about her thought process as, as she um, as she goes about trying to make that decision to run for statewide office. Um, but she also has been really... Um, you know, trying to enact some reform on a local level. And one one topic I think it's worth just really kind of giving a, a brief overview before we dive into this kind of hyper local top local topic with with Shannon Taylor. But basically this has received a lot of attention in the last couple of weeks. She was trying to create or she is trying to create a position within her office, another attorney, another prosecutor that would be simply devoted to holding police accountable. And the way that this position would, would be funded is that the state was going to kick in some money for part of the salary and Henrico County would kick in some money for a part of the salary. And the woman who who was identified for this position, her name was Misty Whitehead, and she has 13 or 14 years of experience in private practice. She's actually a military veteran. And it looked like, you know, they were all set to, to create this position. But then the county supervisor, who is actually a, um, a not an elected official, but one who's been a, an appointed official, um, saw some some social media posts that were um, praising Black Lives Matter. And I guess it made him a little uncomfortable and wasn't really what he signed up for. And so decided to pull the funding, pull Henrico County's portion of the funding for this position and effectively, you know, making it so you know, this, this person was not going to, to take this job. And so 
you know, it's one of those things that is is really frustrating because this is, you know, we, we see the tragedies of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor among countless others. And it's these are tragedies that are going to keep happening unless there is real substantive change, unless there's actually reform that has has some teeth in it, that has that has real accountability. And rhetoric is not going to change this. Um, you know, real policy, real change around accountability, around transparency, that's what's going to create change. And so when you see something like this happen, you know, it can be can be kind of frustrating because, you know, people can make public statements, people can say all the right things, but when it comes time for rubber to meet the road, and in this case for people to actually put their money where their mouth is, they need to follow through. And so we'll talk with, with Shannon Taylor about that, but just thought it'd be helpful for you to kind of give a, a, a quick overview of the, the situation here in, in Henrico County, where I am actually a resident. But um, you know, before we get to, to our conversation with Shannon Taylor, let's meet our co-host. Let's meet Jordan. We start all of our interviews with our guests uh, just by asking how they're feeling. And so I just want to ask you in the first, let's see, month and a half of, of this semester, which again, we're all all virtual again, or basically all virtual. Uh, how are you feeling? Yeah, I think I, I'm feeling okay. You know, um, I'm trying to make the most out of the situation um, that is, you know, being in Charlottesville right now. Um, it's definitely been a much more challenging uh, and and stressful semester um, than normal. Um, you know, normal normal classes contributing to that as always, but um, you know the uncertainty surrounding. Um, the pandemic and 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 the ability to socially interact with people as I normally would um, kind of creates added added stress to the situation, in my opinion. Um, but I think I'm trying to make the most out of it. I'm a I'm a resident advisor, which adds another level of stress um, in trying to you know work with first year students, try to help them interact with other people on a on a daily basis, but also. Uh, maintain the the health measures that will keep them safe. Um, so it's it's kind of a balancing act right now, and I'm just, you know trying to move move through it. I, I did not know that uh, that you were an NRA, and and I imagine you're shouldering a lot of other people's stress as well. And, and I mean, how how are you approaching like you know basically kind of guiding first years in their first college experience in this completely messed up environment? Yeah, something I've tried to keep consistent um, from you know my my past years in the RA to this year is is just being available, um, which I think is very, very important for students who who may feel as though um, normally coming into college for the first time is a lot, but with everything else that's happening, it it, it can be burdensome, um, especially if you come in not knowing a lot of people or not um, you know having these immediate connections that sometimes come with you know, moving into a hall during a non-COVID time. Um, so being available and being supportive and and just, you know, providing my expertise if they come and and ask for it. But even now that's that's harder than normal because people um, you know, have to wear masks in the building and have to um, you know, socially distance, which um is is a deterrent for people to, you know, hang out with each other and hang out with with me as their RA. Um, it, it is for, for it, it serves its purpose and, and does, you know, we do what we need to do to keep people safe. Um, but it's a struggle for people. Um, 
to reach out to me or to you know reach out to other people that they know just to um, talk about the struggles they're going through as as first years. Um, you know when they when they can't go into uh, another building because um, it's the access is restricted because of the pandemic. That you know is is both important because we want to keep everyone safe, but also uh, generally harmful for for making those connections that um, seem to be most important when you know you arrive at the at the university and are trying to you know find your place. And you know, normally people join their CIOs and their their clubs, but you know a lot of that stuff isn't happening either. So I I, I really feel bad for for the first years that I um, that I interact with every day, but I'm trying to help them make the most out of their first year experience in in the way that it exists right now. Yeah, trying trying to find some sort of normal <laughs> in in this environment, which I mean I I can't imagine that position. Um, well, so you are an accelerated student, and so that means that um, you graduated your undergrad, but you're doing the master's program at Batten. And so, um, you know, the, the reason um, I asked you to, to co-host this is we're having a conversation with Shannon Taylor, who's the Commonwealth's attorney uh, in Virginia for Henrico County. And you um, spent this past summer interning with the Department of Justice. And so I'm just curious, kind of a two-part question, you know, what, why, what brought you to Batten? And then two, what was your experience like with, with DOJ this past summer? So Batten really came across my radar um, at an information session um, that I, that I uh, attended when I visit, first visited UVA, even before I came here as an undergrad. And I've always been interested in politics and interested in government. And I wasn't sure if that wanted to take the form of an undergraduate major in political science or government um, and, and just wanted to see where it would go from there. Um, I ended up majoring uh, in, in history as an undergrad and wanted to kind of use that as a, as a benchmark to then jump off of towards, towards Batten and a greater, greater understanding of how policy is created concretely and that what the cross-sections of, of policymaking and politics and government are. Um, I think my, my uh, drive towards criminal justice um, and wanting to, to feel as though in the future I can, I can make an impact and do anything in that field also led me to Baton as the greatest opportunity to be able to pursue that. Um, I think my, my, um, my interest in criminal justice comes from um, partly from my dad who works with kids in the juvenile justice system uh, back in Connecticut, um, but also um, just from my own research and my own, my own interests. Um, has been some, something that's been really important to me. Um, and working with the Department of Justice this summer kind of kind of pushed that forward as well. Um, most of what I was doing with the Department of Justice Office of Policy and Legislation was working um, at the cross-section of, of legislation that was taking place and uh, and policy that um, policy that was being pushed forward and the cross-sections of that and politics and uh, kind of criminal justice policy. Um, the DOJ, we, in our department, I was working mostly with the analytical side, but we also kind of provide, um, provide comments and provide a, um, you know, testimony to at, at congressional hearings on criminal justice policy, but also um, in my analytics department, we were analyzing violent crime across the country, 
um, working with AUSAs across the country to promote Department of Justice um, initiatives and, and vi uh, violent crime prevention programs, um, which was all really incredible and meaningful work that, that I felt like was kind of contributing to, to the overall you know, push for, for you know, safer neighborhoods across the country, but also uh, criminal justice reform um, at the federal level. My understanding of criminal justice is not nearly as, as in-depth as yours. And, but I, I'm curious, you know, your, um, what struck me with this is I've kind of, and I think as a, as a country, a lot of people have um, had criminal justice come more to, their, to, the, to the forefront, you know, since, uh, since May, since the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And it's, you know, we've seen this kind of, you know, somewhat of a reckoning kind of going on across the country. And you know, that kind of led us to have the, having this conversation with um, Henrico County's Commonwealth attorney with Shannon Taylor. But what's striking to me is that we don't, the data isn't always the best. And so we don't really know exactly why some trends are happening the way that they are. And so it, it's, that's something that really just um, took me by surprise as, as I kind of looked, looked deeper into this issue kind of from a, from a policy standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the data, whether you look at, um, you know, violent crime data over the last, you know, if you look at it over the last four years, if you look at it over the last six years, you get a really skewed data, uh, view of, of what violent crime has looked like. Um, if you look at, you know, the, the last two years of the Obama administration, which were, uh, I believe, their worst two years for violent crime, and then the first two years of the Trump administration, which I believe have been, were their two best, you get a really skewed picture of of where that what that data is telling you. Where, whereas if you kind of look look uh, at it from a, a more at a more macro level and look at you know in the last total twenty years, you really see that violent crime has been decreasing consistently over that time, um, and and we have seen some upticks over uh, you know over the last two years of the Obama administration and over the last year and a half during the Trump administration. But but you do get an idea of what's going on with violent crime. Um, and the, the data on criminal justice reform initiatives and programs is very sparse, um, in my opinion. And, and there are so many initiatives that, that are kind of piecemeal across the country, whether it's alternatives to, um, you know, retributive models, uh, of, of prison-based punishment, um, and, and restorative justice initiatives, which is something that I'm really, uh, interested in and, and working on as, as a Baden student. Um, or, or other, you know, models to, to try to, um, you know, stop a school to prison pipeline or, or things like that. The, the data is, is, in, is getting better, but also something that I think we need to, we need to continue to work on as a, you know, criminal justice community to, to improve the, the programs and models that we have today. Yeah. And I think that's, that's very well, and it's just, you know, there are a lot of theories for for what you know different policing approaches different um tactics but it's just um you know it, it's been i think that's what makes this so hard is that it, there's not like a clear cut um this is what needs this is the lever that needs to be pulled to actually make this a a better situation for for everyone and and it's um you know and, and that kind of is what led us to to talk with Shannon Taylor who's you know i think a lot of attention has been paid recently to 
positions like hers, uh, elected positions about, you know, whether it's um, district attorneys, um, attorney generals, um, she's a Commonwealth attorney and is, is an elected official in Henrico County, where they can kind of make a make a bit of a, a bigger difference on, on a local scale. And so that that kind of led us to to speak with to speak with Shannon. And, and so uh, I'm curious. Last question for you, Jordan, before we turn it over to our interview with Shannon. But um, you know, just kind of the local. You, you kind of got the federal sense with DOJ. You know, how, how do you think that filters down to to a local level to where you know folks are folks are interacting with their local police departments? Yeah, I think I think there definitely is an example that is set at the federal level that I believe is very important. Um, at the beginning of any any new administration or at the beginning of any new um, attorney general's time um, in an administration, there 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 are directives and memorandums sent to you know attorneys across the the country who are working with um, the Department of Justice as to what are the what are the uh, you know implications of this new new leadership at the head of the DOJ and what are the what what are the most important elements. That they should they they should be practicing and and putting forward in their work, whether it's you know you know going for harsher sentences or not going for harsher sentences and and things like that. And I think that um, that there can be a culture shift from the top, um, from that attorney general and the leadership um, in in the DOJ of of a greater push for for oversight and for for police reform, which is something that that I think. Um, Commonwealth's attorney Shannon Taylor will will talk to us about, but I think that that there can be a push at the top level that that signals to to um, a, attorneys working across the country that this is something that is important at the federal level, and and we will take action to to increase police oversight, but we we do support you in your if if that's something that you want to do. Um, and I think hopefully that can kind of trickle down from that level um, to to a state level um, and then more to a local level um, to to kind of do the work that 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 at least I feel is necessary to to both keep our community safe and and ensure that that, um, you know, police still have the support that they need um, and, and find that balancing uh, act balance area where where. Um, you know, there is adequate reform and oversight of our police departments, um, but also, um, you know, we, we are still ensuring the safety of our communities. Well, let's get to it and let's, uh, let's get to our conversation we had with Henrico County Commonwealth's Attorney Shannon Taylor. So the question that we start off with all of our guests is really simple, is just given everything that's gone on since March with the pandemic, with, um, you know, certainly, um, all the focus around criminal justice issues with protests in the street. We have an election coming up in less than less than a month. Uh, you know, just simply, how how are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I I will say that under the circumstances, uh, I am I I am pleased with the work that we're doing in Henrico. Uh, I I feel very fortunate and lucky. Uh, I to for all the personal issues that happen out there with COVID and the, how families have been impacted, uh, I am not immune to that. My family was direct, you know, directly impacted. I lost an uncle to COVID. Uh, I have parents that are uh, still with me, thank God, but who are older and so that are 
you know, and my father does have some kind of, you know, pre-existing conditions. So I'm always very mindful about the actions that we're taking. And, uh, and that's true for my personal life. And then of course, for my professional life, uh, the most important thing for me was to make sure that that criminal justice and the services that, you know, in, in the constitution, that we were looking at all of these aspects. Um, you know, we, it was a hard shutdown on, you know, on March 17th, and then just trying to figure out what was it going to look like, you know, as the head of an office, what was, uh, what was the protections of my employees going to look like? What did teleworking look like? Uh, the idea that these were concepts that were so foreign to, to what we did, you know, day in and day out, to what, you know, to now having to make those decisions uh, to continue to move forward. And so it was, uh, it was always a, a challenge, but one that I believe that we all rose to, and that being we being all the, all the players, the criminal justice system, to do that delicate balance of uh, protecting and making sure that your employees are being safe, that we're being good stewards to my colleagues who are defense counsel, but also making sure that we're respecting the individuals who are in the criminal justice system who still have, you know, are still innocent until proven guilty, to make sure that we are respecting those provisions and making sure that people had their, you know, had their time in court, that they were able to exercise whatever constitutional rights that they had. And so it was a little slow uh, in the beginning, but I really uh, believe that Henrico was one of, if not the you know, leading jurisdiction in this Commonwealth, certainly one of the leading jurisdictions where we did, we did the right thing. I mean, there, it, it didn't mean we didn't have cases that were pushed down a little while, but we, we had that initial reaction, but then we really started thinking going, you can't just have a thousand cases moved you know, from, from the summertime to December, it's not gonna work. And then the, you know, that domino effect. Uh, we were one of the four jurisdictions that got original approval from the Supreme Court to have jury trials. Uh, we did have the first jury trial in the Commonwealth and uh, we've had one almost, uh, certainly every week for these last couple of weeks started on the 14th of September. And uh, we're on our, I think our fourth jury trial right now and, uh, and have, have had sometimes two happening simultaneously. So I'm really proud of the work that we've done there. And then of course, that's just like my day job. And along with the, you know, the functioning of the criminal justice system in RICO, we had this special session going on. Uh, I joined uh, my colleagues, you know, there's, there's 12 of us now in what we're calling the Virginia uh, Progressive Prosecutors for Justice, including uh, the, my colleagues down there in Albemarle, Charlottesville, uh, Joe Plantania and, and Jim Hingsley. And uh, I, you know, I, along with them and my colleagues up in Northern Virginia and some from Tidewater, you know, when we knew we were going to have this special session and we knew that there were going to be bills directly addressing uh, criminal justice reform uh, and police reform, obviously two aspects that prosecutors have, you know, direct interest in that we wanted to, we wanted to come together and, and have a unified voice to the extent that we could have a unified voice and let people know what we stood for. And so we had done that at right, you know, right there at the beginning of the special session. And we have, uh, each of us have played some type of role, whether it was to testify before a legislative committee, 
to testify in support of a bill uh, for one of the patrons. And we've all kind of done our, done our job there to be supportive. And now we, are, of course, are at this critical, uh, what I think is a critical uh, crossroads, where some of those criminal justice reforms are, are going to have to go to conference. And we have very different bills, we have, whether it be the Civilian Review Board, whether it be the uh, police about the, the, uh, the no-knock or the, you know, and, and the certain police procedures about the no-chokeholds, uh, and, and most importantly, the, jurance, the jury sentencing reform bill that was offered by Senator Morrissey, and there wasn't a, uh, Delegate Cole had the other one in the House, but that was never presented because uh, the Senate bill kind of conformed to the House bill. So that's the only one that's being uh, discussed. But the important part there is this reenactment clause and the cost aspect that's been argued a lot um, with respect to that bill. So there, uh, you know, it might've been COVID, uh, but I was still coming to the office and there was still a lot of work to be done. And then, you know, lastly, Sean, you, you referenced, you know, we've got a, a major election coming up here uh, in 27 days, I think it is. Now, I maybe mean, it's 26, not good with math, but, but you know, we, ha we have an election that is going to, to truly impact uh, what direction this country is going to go in. And uh, I'm going to have all the faith in the world that, I, that this country is going to do, you know, do what we think is best for us. And we'll kind of know what that what that is, you know, when we see what the results are. But I I would be uh, naive to say that I didn't think there would be some type of reaction, regardless of who wins, whether it be Vice President Biden or if the current president is reelected. Um, we are so polarized right now in our nation, and we are you know we need to be desperate to try to figure out how we can come back together that I would be naive to think that there wouldn't be some type of reaction. Um, so one of the things that prosecutors and law enforcement that we're talking about now is about militias. And what are we, we, are, what are we gonna do if we have that sort of reaction in our community? So I'm actually gonna be participating in a call uh, this afternoon uh, to, to have that information, to talk with my colleagues about certain ways to respond and, and what uh, what statutes are out there to help protect people. I mean, not just, not just what we're talking about today with the voting. And, um, and I don't know if you all heard about the mailboxes that were broken into around here, but the things that we can do now to give people confidence in our system of our, you know, of our, of our system of democracy and making sure that people know that they need to come out and vote. I mean, those, those issues also fall on the shoulders of your uh, local Commonwealth attorney. Well, you know, but before we, um, I want to dive a little bit into your background uh, before we kind of continue along with, with the criminal justice reforms and you mentioned with voting as well. Um, so you did your undergrad at UVA and I'm just curious, what, um, what did uh, what'd you study at UVA? Uh, so I was international relations and was my major and uh, French minor. Um, I did do a study abroad program my third year uh, there. Uh, and of course I grew up in Charlottesville. My father was Alton Taylor, who, who ran the summer school for many, many, many years, also was a professor over the Curry, Curry School. And then my mother uh, was very instrumental in the graduate nursing program. Um, so she, and her name is Ann Gill Taylor. She is a kind of a, a person in her own right, brought the, uh, the Center for the Study of Alternative Therapies. She, that was her 
that was her like baby project 20 plus years ago. And the idea of bringing complementary medicine and how we're changing that holistic approach uh, in medicine was really something, my mom was definitely on the, on the cutting edge of that. And I'm really proud of the work that she's done. Well, and so then after you graduate from UVA, you work as a paralegal. And then I'm curious, you know, what made you want to want to go to law school? You know, I I often tell people I don't really have a good story. Um, Here I was, I was, you know, graduating the University of Virginia. And um, at that time, Governor Belisles, who you all I know are very familiar with. uh, So he had just finished up his administration and he was going to join Hunt and Williams to start their international practice. Uh, And so I was like, ah, I did international relations. Maybe that's something I might be interested in. So I just, I really remember that and the work that he had done. And I thought, oh, that's gonna, you know, that kind of marries the two things I'm really interested in. Um, you know, I loved Paris. I loved, you know, foreign affairs. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that I would, did exceptionally well in my major, but, <laughs> but I certainly enjoyed all of that aspect. And, uh, and the foundation, obviously, of all that is maybe who I am today. So that's what I was thinking about um, going in, uh, in, in terms of what the next step was gonna be. But, but then getting into law school and understanding what there is to offer, I mean, I, I'm, there's part of me that has no idea reflecting going, did I really know I wanted to be a trial lawyer? Um, things just kind of happened in my life. I'm very blessed in that respect that I just, things just, everything happens for a reason. I truly believe that. And I think that's exactly what my life was. I just, I went to University of Richmond. I ended up having uh, this course with these uh, two professors at the time, they were adjunct. It was Claire Cardwell, who's now a judge in the uh, Richmond uh, General District Court here in the city of Richmond, and Carrie Grady, who is with the Federal Public Defender's Office, but was a rich, a city public defender at the time. And they were amazing and impacted my life significantly. And that is uh, doing the trial ad course with them is what kind of got the bug about wanting to do trial work. And then everything else just kind of happened, including 2011. Yeah, kind of going along that from that angle on your career path. Um, I believe you spent a few years in private practice, but most of your uh, most of your life has now been in public service. Did you did you see that as something that you wanted to do, um, or how did that kind of come about? Uh, you know, again, I uh, you know when I was offered a job um, to work in the city. Uh, you know, jobs were hard. We've all had our cycles of, of having to trying to find a job and jobs were not easy to find in 1995 either. And so when given this opportunity to come work for David Hicks, who again is also a judge now in the city of Richmond, um, it, he, he, you know, he approached me because they had an opening in juvenile court. Well, I had taken a juvenile in the law class with, with Bob Shepard, who was uh, again, a man of, in his own right when it comes to, you know, juvenile uh, law back then. He's unfortunately passed away. But uh, it was an opportunity that was there and I needed a job. But I also thought, well, it's juvenile. But the most important part about that, the beginning of my career, was the exposure that I had to these children. You know, I am somebody who grew up, I was very, very fortunate. Uh, white privilege is something I you know, I own, and the idea that, and um, and not only white privilege, but really more of 
the naivete of, of race relations. You know, I went to Albemarle High School and I, you know, my friends were all, you know, different colors, you know, different genders, you know, everything. And back then, I didn't really think about that. But when I was given the opportunity to work with children, you know, and we're talking about children who are victims of crimes, as well as those who are, you know, perpetrating some delinquent activity. And then I get to exposed to the different communities here in the city of Richmond. That was not anything that I had been exposed to before. But I am so, I am, I am immensely grateful to have started my career in juvenile court because back then, you know, we went into the communities. I would go and sit down with these families in their apartments. I went to Gilpin Court. I went to Wickham Court. I went to Mosby. I went to these places. And to have an understanding, you know, because now we know about how everything is interrelated, you know, environment, you know, the trauma. Now we talk about trauma with young children. We talk about the trauma of even adolescence and, and how the trauma of watching your best friend when you were 11 years old get shot right in front of you, how that might impact you now as a young person at 19 and 20 years old. So to be able to say that I've actually been in the community and had that, had that contact gave me an awareness so that when I talk about these things and talk about mis, dis, mis, uh, multidisciplinary approaches to problem solving, I say it because I've actually been there and done it. Um, and when it comes, you know, and even though we talk about that part of my life, and then of course, I was fortunate enough to do two times assigned as a special assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Richmond. But during that time, like I was there for Project Exile. I was there for Project Safe Neighborhoods. I, I'm familiar with the, the federal system and, you know, and the cries about how the sentencing, you know, sentencing structure was so, was, un, was grossly disproportionate to African-American, you know, and particularly the young men. You know, the idea of exile was that it was supposed to be this deterrent that you grew up in the city of Richmond, you got caught with the firearm and you're a felon, we're going to ship you off to somewhere. Well, guess what? You know, they shipped you off to three places, Beckley, Cumberland, <laughs> and Petersburg. <laughs> Petersburg wasn't too hard for families to get to necessarily, but still not next door. But getting to Beckley, getting to Cumberland was problematic. But what were we doing with individuals in those locations? Absolutely nothing. We were just sending young men off for five years to come back and we've given them nothing to help, you know, to help better themselves. So, you know, it, it did have, I mean, and I say that and I can't ignore the fact that violent crime in the city of Richmond did go down, but look at it. I mean, we talk, we, you know, and, and again, Jordan, you can appreciate being at DOJ. You look at, you know, you look at crime trends and you're always trying to figure out, you know, what is responsible for why this particular crime is going down. Um, you know, it's great that violent crime as a whole is going down, but it's not great when you're in the city of Richmond and you've got, you know, 30 more homicides to date than you did last year. That's not problem solving. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, so all of these parts of my, whether it be my prosecutorial life, where I was prosecuting, um, I was lucky to be in all parts of the city of Richmond because we were both, we were, you know, separated by the north of the river. 
river and south of the river, which again, the communities are not the same. And then having the ability to do, you know, defense work, uh, you know, as a private defense attorney. And one of the things I like to share with people is that the people who came and hired me to represent them were often people that I had actually prosecuted. And so, A, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they got in trouble again. So maybe they didn't have the opportunity to, to you know, change their ways for that proverbial fork in the road. But what I will say is, whether it was for themselves or for a friend, the one thing they always talked about was how they said, Ms. Taylor, you were, all, you were tough, but you were fair. And I know that if you cared that much about me when I was on the other side, I can only think that you're going to care that much about me now that you're fighting for me. And I thought that was, a, I mean, that was the most impactful statement I'd heard anybody say about me. And then kind of as a caveat, there was a, even a mom and her son was kind of like, you know, the nemesis of this neighborhood where we thought, you know, we thought he was responsible for killing all these people. We were always trying to catch him. And she came in and wanted me to help her son out with the situation. And I literally said, uh, Miss So-and-so, you know who I am, right? You're like, you know that I am the one who was trying to get your son locked up for these cases. And she goes, oh, I know exactly who you are. She's like, but I know that you're, you know, that you're tough, you're hardworking, and you're going to give my son, you know, the best opportunity he can. And I was like, all right, that sounds, that's great. And, and, and I did. And, you know, it was, it's just, you know, funny how we all, we all know how small the world is anyway, right? COVID or no COVID. But yeah, to have all those relationships as a prosecutor come back. And now even today in my new role, whether it's walking to, you know, running into somebody in the street and it could be the mom, um, you know, whose son's getting ready, like I represented the son and the son's getting ready to come out and they'll say, Ms. Taylor, what do you, you know, can you help me with this? Or, you know, reaching out to me in some capacity saying, can I, I, I've got, now I've got this other, you know, loved one who's got this problem, Ms. Taylor, can you help me out? And I never, I never turn anybody away. It's just because all those relationships made me who I am today. Well, I, I would love to kind of, you know, circle back around in a little bit, maybe ask a question about, you know, your work with Project Safe Neighborhoods. Um, Cause I think that's really interesting to look at, you know, work across the country, especially across different administrations at the federal level and how your directives have been different. Um, but first, just to kind of a general question along those lines, um, was there anything specific that made you decide to run for Henrico County Commonwealth's attorney? Um, you know, the Commonwealth had never had um, a woman in this position and traditionally a, a, a more conservative county. Um, so kind of your thought process in, in that decision. So I think it's important that everyone should know that when I got into the race, it was 10 weeks before the election. So I am, I'm actually getting ready to go to court on a Friday and uh, Claire Cardwell called me. And because uh, at that time, the Republicans already had one candidate who was my law school classmate and they lost faith in him for whatever reason. And they convinced Bill Janice to leave the General Assembly. So they had two candidates in the race. So the Democrats had seen that President Obama had won the county in 2008. And we'd seen Senator Webb had won the county. So they knew that with the right person, they would have, they, they, there was such a thing as a 
blue county somewhere in Henrico. So they had approached Claire um, and she called me and said, hey, Shannon, here's the deal. Uh, I've been asked to do this, but I, I, there's no way I can do that. She had a, you know, a young child at the time, a very, very successful you know, criminal practice. And she said, but I told them that, you know, I couldn't think of anybody better than you. I mean, you know, because she is my mentor. I hope that I resemble somewhat <laughs> like her in respect. She goes, but you are, you know, the, you're the people person. You can talk to anybody. She's like, I think you'd be great. And so it was kind of like, you know, kind of a shock. And then the next two people I call are my dad and uh, David Boone, because I was working for uh, Boone Beal at the time. And my dad, as any good you know, father says to his daughter, you can do anything. And why not you? Like, of course, you can do anything you want to do, right? And then I call David and David's like, oh, this is an awesome opportunity. And you know, he's like a second father figure. And he was like, you can definitely do this. So that happens on a Friday, Monday I announce, and of course Monday's also when we had the big earthquake. <laughs> so I'm going to Richmond Court, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm paying my ticket in the in the little kiosk, and I'm talking to my assistant at the office, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the earth starts to shake, and I'm like, oh my God. So then, you know, I was like, oh, well, that's a sign, because, you know, I am a woman of faith as well. I'm like, okay, that's a sign for something. But more importantly, when it came to be election day, and it was seven o'clock, and I just finished work, you know, working the, you know, the polls, and I literally said out loud, I was like, God, it is what it is. Like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I'm like, if I win, I'm going to get the opportunity to do something really, really great. But if I don't win, I still get to do a job that I love. So for me at that moment, it was it was, you know, I, I couldn't lose. But the good news is God blessed me with the opportunity to do something really, really great. And that is what I think has carried the momentum from, you know, 2011 to my success in 2015 when I won 57%. And then just recently last year when I won the entire county, I won all five magisterial districts. Um, as Henrico continues to shift you know, to be more of a blue county, but we always, we still recognize we have a Republican, you know, controlled board of supervisors. So, you know, my success that's been demonstrated these three elections uh, is hopeful, the way I look at it, for Henrico, but also, um, you know, it's, it's hopefully a testament to the change that I've brought and that people like what they see and that the change that are happening are still making Henrico a safe place. Now we just need to get to the place where people feel like Henrico is an equitable and fair county for everybody who lives here, regardless of you living in the East End or the West End or the North Side. It, it feels like your your role, just on a national level, has gotten a lot more um, a lot more uh, attention. Just when when people are trying to focus in on where criminal justice reform can happen, and really electing people with more progressive values to. Um, to positions like yours. And I'm curious how, how you have seen that um, kind of take place over the last few years. And then, in, and in particular, too, I mean, just, just how the, the criminal justice conversation has changed over, over the last five months, um, you know, with um, kind of in the aftermath of, of George Floyd and, of course, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and just, um, you know, how have you seen the evolution since you took, took office as a Commonwealth attorney, but then specifically in the last five months? 
So, I mean, when I look at my colleagues uh, that are part of this VPBJ group with me, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, Prince William is probably the one jurisdiction that's closely resembling uh, Henrico in terms of the demographics and the Republican, you know, dem democratic demographics. Uh, so when, when people talk to me about the changes, I have to, you know, remember that, you know, I wasn't in, you know, you know, Alexandria or Arlington that is super duper blue. And I come in and I say, I want to do this, 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 and this. And everyone's like, absolutely, Shannon, that's going to happen. It had to be very purposeful. And in Henrico, again, having a Republican controlled board of supervisors, it was intentional, purposeful, and methodical. So it has taken me kind of 10 years to get to this point where we are now. So now what we have is a county that is, in my opinion, uniform in its response after the murder of George Floyd to say, we need to do things differently. So I now have the ability, so while things had been very slow and methodical since 2012, in these last six months, I've been able to stay we need, you know, we need this change. We need to do this reform because our jury system isn't right now, isn't, isn't equitable and fair to everybody. We need to see how we are holding law enforcement more accountable. And I can say bolder statements today because I know what the community is thinking because I have been there. I've been in the room. I've been at the town hall meetings, uh, the civilian review board, I have seen overwhelming support for that change, for accountability and transparency. And then um, taking it to the next step when I talk about you know, police form, with police form comes prosecutorial reform. And then being able to make very bold statements to be honest about what we do as prosecutors and in holding ourselves accountable and holding you know, law enforcement accountable just like we would hold any other citizen accountable for their actions. And being bold enough to say, we need to do things better, and this is what we can do. So with that, you know, there are initiatives that I have been uh, undertaking and, um, and, have, has, and some of that has made the news recently. I had the position in my office, the, the deputy commonwealth attorney position that was entitled, you know, for police integrity and uh, for community outreach, that was then the subject of of a lot of discussion about the young lady that I call a young lady, she's been practicing for you know 16 plus years, but for the you know for the woman that I wanted to hire, and then became the subject matter of social media posts and Black Lives Matter, and then how did we get to this point that Black Lives Matter is supposedly automatically anti-law enforcement, which it could not be you know further from the truth. When we're talking about accountability. You know, whether we talk about it as the George Floyd moment in time, the Black Lives Matter movement that has been going on, you know, since Trayvon Martin, right? This has been going on for years. It's just that it has been able to kind of get resurrected every now and then because of these horrible, tragic events. But for some reason, this time it's, it's staying. And I am very thankful for that. And because it's staying, it gave me the ability to say, we, these are the changes I wanna see made. And so 
now we have this dialogue happening in Henrico about can you be fair? I mean, this is a system that's supposed to be setting up to, again, hold law enforcement accountable for their actions. And, um, you know, I am, I am very supportive of my public safety uh, friends. I, you know, I want the best. I want everybody who goes out to come home to their families. I want everyone to be safe. But in order for there to be this community trust, we've got to take a look at how we are conducting ourselves. And so we are starting to pull back the curtain, you know, peel the onion layers back to see how we've been addressing that at Henrico. So, you know, are we treating every complaint the same way? Are we conducting traffic stops the same way in the western part of the county versus the eastern part of the county, which for anyone who does not know Henrico County, uh, we're shaped like a horseshoe and we're about 340,000, approaching 350,000 people. And it's a uh, demographic that's about 60% uh, Caucasian, 30% African-American, and then that other 10% being uh, Middle Eastern, Asian-American, Eastern European. Uh, you know, we have what I believe is like a, I call it like a little mini United States. We have the socioeconomic aspects. We have, you know, mixed use developments. We've got, you know, old suburban neighborhoods. We've got industrial parks. And, you know, we, and we have uh, some of our, uh, you know, Section 8 um, lo community locations. And we have schools that are dealing with the same issues that everybody else is dealing with. So because we are, have that, we need to understand that every Henricoan, whether you live in Short Pump, Glen Allen, Fairfield, or Sandston, that if you have an interaction with law enforcement, it should not matter what, what color your skin is, what your gender is, what your age is. You should be con having the same interaction regardless of who you are and where you live. Do you mind? I'd love to give you just kind of a um, my reaction as a constituent to what happened like with this. Um, and I'm curious if, if you can correct where, validate or, or correct me where you think I'm wrong. Um, but the, the situation you mentioned, you're trying to create a position within your office that will be dedicated to holding police accountable. And um, the issue here, and just a, a very quick explainer, 10 seconds, is that um, the state was going to provide some funding. The county was going to provide some funding. Um, there were some social media posts about uh, Black Lives Matter. And the county manager came in and said, we're not going to provide our, our side of the funding. And to me, it, it, it bothered me because there was this talk about objectivity. And if the posts were kind of seen um, slanted in the other way, it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, and so it really wasn't about objectivity. And, and really, if, if you're trying to, my reaction to this is I believe there should be better accountability. And if you're trying to create this position to have some teeth, you would almost want someone who is fair, but is really kind of looking and, and, and trending towards holding people accountable rather than backing away. Right. And so I, I don't know, it, it just didn't really, um, it didn't pass the sniff test for me, especially when you talk about objectivity, because this position, it feels like it's created to where there needs to be a little bit of, hey, you know what, we're going to go in and try to try to keep this institution accountable. 
So, well, and I appreciate your, <laughs> your position. Um, but to me, what this is about is this is, a, I mean, we talk, we talk about Black Lives Matter because it is the African-American community that has been directly impacted, whether it be the disparate treatment in the criminal justice system, the population in our, uh, in our institutions, uh, the, con you know, the actual contact with law enforcement, and then particularly this idea of the use of force. That we cannot deny. And because of that, you know, the unequal treatment, there has been this need of why is that happening? And so to me, um, you know, I have my proven ability because I'm in the community. That's a very important part of my job, which is to be in the community, again, regardless of, you know, what events going on in Henrico. But when it came to the community trust of that position, I don't know if you read Michael Paul Williams' um, op-ed today, but he was spot on. And I did not speak to him when he wrote this. But he said, it couldn't be a career prosecutor because we also talk about implicit bias. We talk about implicit bias. And again, the idea being that prosecutors are always in bed with the police. And that's not true. I'm always saying we are not the attorney for law enforcement. You know, that is your municipal attorney. It, we are supposed to be there as, you know, to, to oversee that, um, as I called it, you know, the, the rules of the game. And I would tell my clients, this is not a game, but there are rules that need to be followed. And the prosecutor has rules and the cops have rules and you have to make sure that they're following them. And so that is what our job is. And when you, and when part of that job comes with the hours and hours and hours of body worn camera footage, we wanted someone who could be able to, you know, watch that footage and then bring, bring a matter to my attention. Cause again, let's not lose sight. Uh, I am the ultimate decision maker with this, with this position. And so uh, the idea that, and um, that when she was making these posts, she was, in my opinion, giving an analytical, you know, she was giving, uh, giving an analytical review of a circumstance and would give praise as much as she would give, you know, com uh, complaints to. So for example, we talked about how she praised uh, the deputy down in Georgia when he called out his colleague for using all the racial, you know, slurs that he was using, and that deputy actually gets, you know, prosecuted for his conduct. Her remark to that was, we need to make sure that the people who have, that, that our law enforcement officers have support, that when they see something, they, you know, they say something, just like we tell citizens. Gave praise to, you know, to local police officers here who had, you know, done some things, and she's, and her comment was, they might actually get some backlash for doing the right thing, but let's give praise again to officers who are reaching out to the community. Um, and so because I saw her being kind of even-handed to giving praise as well as criticism, so to say, when we have these instances that are happening in Rochester, when we have these in Kenosha, and we are all trying to make sure that you know, and it's hard to Monday morning quarterback. That's part of our job, right? But the idea being uh, and that when law enforcement officers do go beyond their normal duties and responsibilities and they go beyond and engage in unlawful, unlawful activity, 
we should have the courage to be able to call that out. And that's what I saw. And I can tell you, Sean, you know, that, that the community, when we first came up with the, uh, came up with the, the position, received overwhelming support. And then to date, I'm still receiving, whether it be emails, you know, letters, phone calls, who looked at this individual and really appreciated the personal story that she had, uh, that she had certain life experiences that would be able to give her that credibility. Because let's go back to what I said back in 1996, when I was working in the city of Richmond and trying to deal with children who had grown up in very tra you know, trauma environments, and I had never experienced that before in my life. And it's taken me 20 years, you know, to have, you know, to get to that point, to have an appreciation, right, through, through working with my clients and going into and going and exposing myself to those environments. She's actually lived those experiences. So why not have somebody who can appreciate that? Because, you know, when we talk about hiring, whether it's hiring police officers and we talk about what happened, you know, in Camden, New Jersey and the complete overhaul of their public safety office and how they made this very strong push to recruit the young men and women that actually grew up in Camden to come back and be police officers. I mean, we're actually, we're living this moment uh, in Henrico where we have our brand new police chief who actually had, you know, he didn't grow up here, but came to University of Richmond, stayed here in Henrico, lived, has lived here for the last 30 years, raised his children here, they went to Henrico County Schools. And so he's coming back to the community of all the things that he has heard. Now he was a, you know, was also in the city of Richmond Police Department for a long time before he became the chief in Harrisonburg. But he's at least been with the Henrico community and has heard what people are talking about. So we have these, you know, individuals who have these, uh, I'm going to call it unique characteristics, but certainly very uh, important characteristics of their life experiences that I think make them the best people for that job. So whether it be Ms. Whitehead for the you know the direct, this deputy position in my uh, in my office, or even you know hiring Chief English that we've done. I mean that was an excellent move uh, for Henrico County. Uh, it's it's bringing people who can who have a perspective that can help bring the community trust back to the level it needs to be. Yeah, I want to thank you for your honesty on that because um, I think I think we can agree that that is is extremely important um, for our communities. Um, kind of pivoting a little bit um, to your role um, in in the in the scope of larger criminal justice reform. Um, you know, how do you see, uh, what do you see as your biggest obstacles to, to kind of pushing for criminal justice reform in your area? And, and kind of going back to what you talked about earlier with projects like Project Safe Neighborhoods um, in reductions in violent crime, how have you struggled over your, the last 10 years to, um, you know, work with different memorandum from, say, uh, uh, more uh, uh, democratic uh, administrations versus um, administrations that would would push harder for for those harsher sentences on on uh, gun arrests, as you were describing earlier. 
So I, I would say the two biggest obstacles um, are resources when it comes to whether it's the state resources or your locality resources. And I will single out with respect to mental health and then the practical understanding of the legislative process in creating laws. So as to the first one, uh, I have, I've always been very mindful about mental health. It has been a topic that's only been really talked about in the last, I'm gonna say maybe 10 to 12 years now. I mean, since I've been here, uh, since 2012, I've made, have made sure that it's been part of the dialogue for sure. But even as doing defense work, um, I was also very mindful about mental health issues. I'm very mindful about brain development and you know, exec executive function development uh, with our adolescents. And the thing that has made me probably the most upset is that while I talked about all of that before, you know, 2015, when Senator Creed Deeds, you know, a man who is so well respected in this Commonwealth, within the legislative and from both, you know, both sides of the aisle, who lives one of the tragedies that we're always talking about when we're worried about having, you know, the right response to people who are in a mental health crisis situation. And we have done absolutely nothing since 2015. Here we made all these promises. We had this bipartisan committee that was supposed to be doing things. We have done absolutely nothing. We have hospitals who don't want to hold on to people longer than they have to. We have people streeted without appropriate resources, no foundational services. We have people who have committed crimes who don't necessarily need to be in a Department of Corrections environment. They need hospitalization environment. We have nothing to offer individuals. We are you know, doing a better, and I will say in Henrico, the idea about you know, crisis intervention um, and having the right type of response to individuals who are in a mental health crisis and having a public safety response, I do believe Henrico has done a much better job than other localities and how they've been responding, that everything is not always a law enforcement response. But even within Henrico, you know, the patrol officer who should be calling the CIT team maybe doesn't think about it at the time because of whatever is happening, but perhaps if that CIT team had been contacted earlier, the interaction might have gone a little differently. I mean, and again, we're Monday morning quarterbacking, but that's what, that's what we do. Um, so mental health and then having, uh, so the resources for that. Also with substance use disorders, and we, there's been a lot of talk about that. And you can say it's because of the opioid epidemic and being honest, like, you know, did it just become a problem because, you know, white people were dying because black people were dying from crack cocaine back in the 1990s, but they were dying because of the violence that was associated with crack cocaine. And our response to that was Project Exile, lock them up and send them away. But then we have a very large white population dying from, you know, opioids, over prescription of opioids and just the pharmaceutical companies just literally you know, producing money 
every time they press a pill out and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Well, then, then the, again, the question became resources. What are we doing to help these individuals? And the recovery community was trying to figure out what to do. Again, no inpatient facilities, not enough beds for anybody, certainly nothing that was being covered at that time by like Medicaid. Um, everything was private funding. And so what had happened? People start getting locked up. They start getting held in the jail. And then the jails become overpopulated. So resources is a huge issue. And we're finally, you know, people are waking up now finally, at least with, with the substance use disorders, and you're seeing a lot more funding that's happening for that. Again, mental health, I think, is still woefully inadequately funded. But then moving over to the second prong, which is for criminal justice reform. And when I'm talking about uh, expungements, when I'm talking about you know, removing mandatory minimums, when we're talking about changing the laws and having an appreciation that you can get up there, you know, Mr. Delegate or Mr. Senator or Ms. Senator and say, let's do this law this way. If you're not in the system to have an understanding that when you make this decision, it's gonna impact 10 other agencies and how do we make sure that all works out, then you're just creating more work down the road. And so while I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly support issues of expungement and want to be able to expand that, and we've, we've done it a little bit on the front end by expanding judicial authority for discretion, right? We're not saying if it's not in the code, we can't do it. We're gonna give you a statute that says you can do it under any circumstance you want to. That's fine. But expungements and trying to remove somebody's record, but then you're gonna leave it for these one caveats of, of you know, if you're applying for some type of you know, high clearance, we can't, it's not expungement, it's just hidden. It's, it's, it gets very, very complicated. And like, why are we waiting eight years? Because for one person, it should be three years or should it be five years? Like what's so special about eight years? Because eight years is a long time. I've been in office for eight years, right? I mean, that's a long time. And so just pushing something out so you can say, hey, I did this without really recognizing, you know, the implications, I think can sometimes be an impediment. Uh, I, and I, and I, let me say specifically about this one bill, because I really do, uh, this jury reform is huge. The bill from Senator Morrissey is huge. But I don't like this squishiness of, of saying, well, we're going to give the defendant 30 days beforehand before he, they've even seen the, the group of people up there decide if they want them to you know, hold, have their fate in their hand. Like, what, what is that serving? That purpose is serving nothing. And, and I, you know, and, and the way that we are split up into 120 jurisdictions with all of the different circuits, with the 300, you know, plus almost 400 judges that we have out there, and nothing's uniform because everybody wants to say, well, your jurisdiction does it your way, and, you know, and don't tell me how to do my job in my jurisdiction. It kind of like, it gets lost and it gets lost because why did we come up with the sentencing guidelines? You know, that the reason why we have federal sentencing guidelines is because if you got convicted in California, New York, Texas, or Virginia, 
everybody was supposed to get, you know, handled the same way if the facts were the same. That's not true in the Commonwealth. And I sit on the sentencing commission, the criminal sentencing guideline commission, and, you know, and it's a data driven group. And so when we're always trying to figure out how to kind of like, you know, fix the guidelines so things can be equitable, uh, it, it can get squishy. And so why are we giving this kind of hybrid model? I mean, I'm all for wanting to make sure that, you know, that everyone is given a fair shake, but, you know, rolling the dice with a jury and then all of a sudden the jury gives you 60 years and the guidelines are like five years, there needs to be accountability on the court for taking, you know, for taking responsibility of being, you know, of not taking any action on that. And we do a terrible job at that in Virginia. We don't hold judges accountable. I mean, for the first time we saw, uh, what, five judges didn't get reappointed like two or three years ago. And, you know, and you can question the motivation that was behind some of that stuff. But there is a whole lot more that should be done. And so we are trying to make recommendations uh, at that, you know, in that commission to ask judges to be more transparent of why didn't you do this or why did you do this? And they should not be afraid to say why they're taking the action that they're action. That's why they were put in that position. So, you know, to me, those are the big things that are out there. And, um, and then of course, you know, prosecutors are getting all freaked out about uh, the idea of sentencing credits. And again, you know, giving the parole board uh, more, more autonomy, uh, more dis discretion to, to, link, to shorten someone's uh, length of stay in a facility because they have taken, you know, taken on actions to better themselves or maybe, you know, maybe the time was really too much and now they're 70 years old and they don't have the ability to reoffend because we know what the data says. There's just like so much stuff out there that the sound bite of, I want to give everybody 50% and let's bring parole back. I'm supportive of those things, but the implementation of them can be a lot more difficult than it seems. And sometimes people don't care about that. <laughs> Last question before we, before we wrap up. And, um, you know, I know that I don't think you've made a decision one way or the other, but there's speculation that you might run for statewide office in the near future. And I, I'm just really, my question isn't what's, what are you going to do, but what kind of goes into that decision? You know, how, how do you think about that? Um, that, uh, that what, what's that decision-making process like for you? Well, I mean, I think sometimes it's easy for people to say uh, they don't like the job that the current person is doing. And so that's what I want to do. Uh, you know, I, I mean, for what we've heard from our current attorney general, uh, Mark, and I will tell you, Mark Herring and I, we are friends. We have consulted each other on issues and I respect him a lot. So the question then is, if you like that person who's doing the job, the question is, well, what else is there? Is there, a, uh, is there a community calling for something different? Uh, is there a skill set that you have that someone else does not possess? And, um, and so those are the things that I think about, um, and particularly, you know, the obvious being a woman and the idea that I, I do think that women approach problem solving different than men. Uh, whether or not that means, you know, I can solve more problems than a man. I'm not going to say that at all because, because they're always got a lot of things out there, 
but I mean, but the idea that that if you know if the community want to see more leader, uh, female leadership, you know, that's something to consider because I mean, certainly people have reached out to me and say, "You've done a great job here. We think you should take it to the next level, and you can do a great job for all Virginians." But yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things that come into play on that, and uh, yeah, I certainly. Uh, I'm not thinking about that right now because, again, we got something big happening on November 3rd. Well, the last question that we always wrap up with all of our guests is, um, you know, we are the we're students at the Frank Batten uh, School for Leadership and Public Policy and really with emphasis on leadership. So what's the what's the leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish uh, someone would have told you as either a graduate or undergraduate student? Oh, what they should have told or wish that someone had told me. Um. I got to tell you, I don't know, because I feel like one of the, the life lessons, I mean, that I'm better today than I was, you know, 20 years ago, is I'm a much better listener. And um, to also appreciate that your way may not necessarily be, it's certainly not the only way, and it may not be the best way. So for example, um, I just participated in this event last night with my ends of court and they, you took a little test about your innovation, you know, innovation leadership style. And I was sage. <laughs> and that was about uh, collaborating and listening to other people's ideas and being purposeful, not, you know, not, I mean, you can still be decisive, but not rushing to judgment, not being too slow, uh, it's always great to be the first one to do something, but to hear other people's ideas so that you can do make the best decision possible that will have the most positive impact for all involved. And that's what I really try to do. And that's why I think, you know, we, you know, things can get complicated sometimes in life, uh, definitely get complicated in politics. But I, uh, I live by the mantra, whether it's prosecuting a case in court or trying to come up with the right uh, solution to a problem, which is to do the right thing. And uh, I, I hope I've been doing that. I, it's certainly going to be my commitment to continue doing that. The right thing for everybody in Henrico, certainly everybody in the Commonwealth, and uh, to the extent that we can then be a leader for the rest of the nation, I hope we can do that as well. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Henrico County Commonwealth Attorney Shannon Taylor. Thanks so much to Jordan Cyclic. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.